Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we refer to an interpretation or discuss interpretation theories, we do so to claim authority over the text or to avoid accountability. A written text in any language says what it says. You need only see with your eyes what is written on the pages. Note the use of the plural pages. You have to take it all in, over and over again, paying close attention to the original languages. The act of searching the text is not theory, it's an action. Either you search the text or you don't. We like to debate interpretations and theories of interpretation because it is much, much easier than spending the rest of our lives poring over and hearing the words on the pages. Unfortunately, the only way to hear what someone is saying is to actually listen to what they say. If we are not doing this, everything we say about the Bible is vain talk. So don't ask what a word means. Instead, search the Bible from cover to cover and learn how the Bible itself interprets that word. In Matthew's Gospel, you'll quickly discover that Matthew is talking about Matthew's Gospel. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 9 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 372 of the Bible as Literature podcast. People love to talk about marketing in an ecclesial setting because as churches shrink, everyone is desperate to figure out how to bring people back or grow these communities so that they can be socially and economically viable. Inevitably, this results in people trying to make the gospel palatable. But the gospel isn't palatable. The gospel is the bitter pill. It's the thing that hell spat back up. That's why we shout Epichranti on Pascha, because the Father gave hell indigestion by making hell swallow Jesus. Having said that, there is a place in the New Testament for political strategy, as St. Paul demonstrates. But he does so only to secure his ability to fight the good fight, to run the race, and deliver the bitter pill to the nations. But the pill is bitter, and the people to whom he delivers the pill are no less satisfied with it than those of importance and high reputation in Jerusalem who are trying to stop him from delivering the bitter pill. That's why Paul is so careful with respect to his handling of those 
who have high reputation. It's not because their reputation matters. It's because he doesn't want to let anything cause scandal but the bitter pill of the gospel. Exactly. You have to make sure that they don't hate you just because you're a jerk. You might be a jerk with very little to say, and they're not upset with what you're saying. They're upset that you keep talking and you have nothing to say. That might be the problem. So you're not allowed to revel simply in the fact that people hate you. That's why it's always for my name's sake, in my name, both in five and here. It's for my sake, in my name, because otherwise you're being persecuted for your sake because you're a pain in the neck. We don't act correctly so that we can gain points. We don't act correctly so that people like us, so that with our buttery tongues, we can offer up this sweet tasting gospel. No, that's not why. We act correctly because it removes all stumbling blocks except one, and that's the gospel itself. So that if somebody trips It's because the only thing in the way of their acceptance is the content of the gospel itself. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That last phrase, because of my name, is what we're talking about this morning. It is absolutely critical that you are not hated because of your name. You have to make sure that all you are doing is delivering the gospel of the kingdom. That is the mission. That is what Paul is striving for in the New Testament. That is the race. Paul is, in this sense, an athlete who is running, carrying the torch of the gospel, and struggling to deliver it to Rome and beyond in his letters so that he would have fulfilled his duty towards the commandment of Jesus that he carried this teaching forward to the nations. It's that basic. That's why in Matthew, the military metaphor is so powerful. You have a mission. Go do it. When you are focused on the mission, when you're focused on the goal, nothing gets in the way, including and especially yourself. You'll do whatever you have to do to complete the mission, including making yourself irrelevant because you care about the outcome. You are only a vessel that offers up this word. If you're anything more, if you're flashy, if you look like this or that, if you sound like this or that, you're most likely getting in the way. The only purpose of humility is to get your ego out of the way. If people notice your humility and not the gospel, then you're the problem and your humility is the problem. But if your humility gets you and your personality and your big head out of the way so that the gospel speaks alone, loudly and clearly, then you're doing the right thing. Now, in this passage, I find it interesting because it doesn't say hated by all. It doesn't say hated by all people. It says hated by all nations. We just had in this passage earlier that nation would be rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This not only speaks that you are equally upsetting all nations, not favoring one nation over the other, this can also be interpreted as anti-Roman because one of the great precepts of Roman politics, diplomacy, and military strategy was divide and conquer. 
You get one nation to love you and one nation to hate you, and then you get them to fight it out between them, and then you come up afterwards and pick up the pieces. In this case, it's saying all the nations are going to equally hate you if you're doing the right thing. Nations, not individuals, nations. The kingdom of heaven functions in such a way that it is opposed to every other kingdom, every other nation, by proposing a single kingdom and a single nation out of all these other nations and kingdoms because it undermines what those nations are themselves. This is what the gospel does at its core. This Greek word, thlipsis, is interesting in Matthew. It occurs throughout the New Testament, but It occurs the first time in Matthew chapter 13, Richard, and deals with the seed that is sown in rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction, thlipsis, or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. It's an important connection in Matthew because Jesus is saying clearly here that this is exactly about the sowing of the seed, and the disciples are the ones whom he considers at risk of falling away when there's affliction. This boils down to not the lip service you give when you're so happy to receive the gospel and it's so wonderful, Jesus, but what you do when the rubber hits the road. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. With that functional connection through the word tribulation, affliction, we now understand that first and foremost, Jesus is talking about the disciples. They will be scattered and confused. There will be betrayal, not just by Judas among their ranks, because they can't stomach what it really means to be hated for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a huge point here, Father. Jesus is very concerned about his followers falling away more than he's concerned about other people not accepting this. Churchgoers beware. So-called believers beware. You're not in good shape because other people accepted or rejected what you had to say. You're only in good shape if you stay the course even when you are threatened with death. If you stay the course, then you're in good shape. But it is not how many souls have you saved for Christ that we're concerned about here. There are many who are going to be offended, scandalizo, scandalized. They're going to be prevented from following the path or even pulled from the path. This is the danger that you're going to say or do something that's going to pull someone off the path or you yourself are going to leave the path. Those are the ones who are going to betray one another, like what James did. James pulled Peter from the path in Galatians. He scandalized Peter. This is a bigger danger than people not listening to the gospel in the first place and rejecting it. The letter of Galatians was written so that people would stay on the path. The letters to the Corinthians were written so people would stay on the path and not leave. So when Paul is worried about them betraying and hating one another, it's people inside the church. It's not those people on the outside. Those people on the outside, we already have said they hate you. Okay, so we're not worried about that. We know that they hate you. That's what's going to happen. But the concern 
is that you who are on the path might leave or even worse, pull one of your brothers from the path. Here's the trick with this verb miseo, which is the root of, for example, in English misogyny, the hatred of women. It's from this verb. It's the same word that's used when Jesus talks about the nations hating the gospel. Because of your fear of the nations who hate God's teaching that they should love God and love their neighbor, you forcefully reject that teaching and turn on one another. And instead of loving one another out of deference to Christ, you hate one another and you break the body of Jesus Christ. That is the scandal. Because you then are working against Jesus and undermining his flock. You then become the wolf in sheep's clothing. That's why in verse 11 we hear, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. He is referring to what we will hear in Galatians and in Acts and elsewhere. You're going to break the body of Jesus Christ. We hear it in 1 Corinthians also. You're going to break that body because you fear the power of death. You fear the nation's hatred of my teaching. You fear what they're going to do to you. And as a result, you are going to lead many away from my church, my flock, my people. And I will not have any of that. This is truly an admonition to the church. Do not allow your fear of the mob, your fear of losing security, your affection for the buildings of the temple in Jerusalem. Do not allow that to destroy the body of Christ. You're going to allow your preoccupation with buildings and things that pass away, your fear of taxation, your fascination with armies and coins, you're going to allow that to undermine, scandalize, and harm and injure the body of Jesus Christ. And that is not allowed in the Gospels. It's the worst possible thing. That's why in Galatians, Paul says you have a duty first to the body. In Matthew, very clearly, that is preached as the responsibility first and foremost not to scandalize yourself off the path of righteousness by being misled by your fears. The false prophet is one who teaches their own gospel, who teaches another gospel. Paul says in Galatians, they're anathema. The false prophet teaches an anathema, scandalizing and pulling people off the path. The false prophets in Jeremiah are the ones who are preaching peace. If you do what we say, then we'll have peace again in the land. God's going to grant us peace and everything will be good again if you just do what God says. And Jeremiah says, no, you're all going to go into captivity. Sorry, it's better to just give up now than to try to fight because you're not going to win. It didn't end up very well for Jeremiah for saying that, but we saw which prophets were the true prophets, Jeremiah alone, versus the false prophets, the one who preached peace. Don't forget, this is at a time, Jesus is saying, of wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquake, all these things. So the one who says, oh, it's all going to be over, it's all going to be peace, you have to be suspicious of them too. This is how false prophets sound. 
And Jesus said there's going to be these things. He doesn't say there's going to be these things and then everyone's going to be nice. No, then he says, and they're going to fight and you're going to be killed. There's no peace. There's death. My only concern, Jesus says, is that you stay on the path. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Here in verse 12, it's very easy to assume that the anomia pertains to the chaos in the world, but that is incorrect. The lawlessness pertains to the church. Those who are lawless are those who fear the affliction and the suffering. Those who are lawless, those who are not guided by God's wisdom, are the ones who are concerned about the stock market, concerned about wars and rumors of wars, concerned about the budget to maintain the buildings of the temple complex. This is not against the world. It's against those in the church who injure the body of Christ, as in the case of 1 Corinthians. Whether you're running off to a civil court to resolve a dispute or going to the sacrifice of meat before Zeus or Apollo and then importing the arrogance of the sympotine into the body of Christ and injuring the weaker brother, your fear your fear of losing something in a dispute, your fear of not being accepted by those of high reputation in Roman society is causing you to injure the body. This is of the utmost importance. Christians must hear this as a critique of Christians, not of the world. Of course there is affliction in the world because that's the world, whatever. Father Mark, tell us why there was a tsunami. Why was there an earthquake? What's the meaning of it? My answer is always very simple. There are tectonic plates on planet Earth, and sometimes they rub up against each other because the Earth is constantly in motion. And every once in a while, that movement is aggressive enough that it causes the ground to shake. And if it happens in the ocean, it causes a big wave and people die. Why, Father Mark? Because that's how the Earth works. Jesus isn't worried about the fact that there is suffering. He's simply explaining that there is suffering, and you can't allow that to cause you to become a chicken and betray your brothers. You have to stand fast until the end so that God can make you victorious against the afflictions and tribulations of the world. And that, of course, is what's meant by the word save, sozo. It's God's victory on your behalf if you stand fast to his commandment. This is the salvation we're talking about, and it's so funny because Christians get in a crisis about Torah versus Jesus, Old Testament versus New Testament, law versus grace. These are never-ending. But here Jesus says, because of lawlessness, anomia, this comes from nomos, which means law, which is Torah. Because they're not following Torah, then love will wax cold. And I had a very concrete example. I had a friend trying to do something good. He ended up making some very bad choices, and things ended up very badly for him. He was shaken up by how much he had messed up and how much he screwed things up and how bad his decisions were. And I said, look, the great thing is, right now at this moment, you can find somebody to reach out to and help. You can still do the next right thing. 
just because you did that and it was it was objectively a bad thing. But now let's get back on the path of correct conduct and Torah, and that way you can go love somebody else. Because this is a path of loving others. This is a Torah that says we're supposed to help the needy brother, that we're supposed to lift the needy brother or sister up so that they can have what they need, so we can do what we can to alleviate their suffering. These false prophets are going to tell us everything's good, just love Jesus in your heart. The imperative to help out others starts to disappear. Then love for others that is commanded by this law, disappears. But the way that you endure to the end, and like you said, Father, this is the only thing that Jesus is worried about here, is enduring, not converting others, enduring. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to this teaching even when you're persecuted. Not to your ego, Not to the false prophets who say it's going to be peaceful, everything's going to work out just fine if you do this. You endure to the end, even if that end is your own death at the hand of the nations who hate this teaching. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I'm hearing Romans, I'm hearing 1 Corinthians, you can't escape the Pauline corpus when you're reading this text. You have a duty. You have to make sure that everybody hears this testimony, this gospel, this written teaching. You have to read it to everybody, not convert them. Just make sure that they heard the testimony. And you have to remain faithful to the testimony so that their hatred of God's words does not bring you down with them. And then they have a choice so that when we get to Matthew 25, everybody knows the criterion that Jesus is using to separate the sheep from the goats before the sight of his father on that day. That's what the race is. The race is to make sure everybody knows how and why they will be judged when they are judged in Matthew 25 in the eschaton. You have to get the word out. Remember, we talked about Jesus being the guy who calls the president before the president is born to make sure the president knows for the record that he's guilty so that when the impeachment trial happens, he has no defense. (laughs) That's what's happening here. And believe me, the court of Matthew 25 is not the U.S. Congress. The will and the opinion of the mob does not factor into Jesus' pronouncement according to the will of his Father against the goats. Don't kid yourself. There is no mob rule in God's court. There is just the will of the Father. And this gospel of the kingdom, not just this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. It's not any kind of court or any kind of nation, or any kind of kingdom that we understand on this earth. It's the kingdom of the heavens. It's the kingdom of the Father, as Matthew continues to say. This is a witness to all the nations. There is a kingdom that's coming, and it's bigger, stronger, and entirely different than anything that you understand as far as big and strong. This is what's coming. It's simply a witness. It doesn't say they have to believe it. I mean, just because you bring a witness into court doesn't mean you're going to convince the jury. 
But if you don't bring the witness, then you can't establish your case. You just bring the witness and say, you know, this is the side of the story that the jury needed to hear. Whether it convinces the jury or not, that's their problem. That's the jury's problem. But as soon as somebody quotes Dr. Richard Benton, I'm in trouble because I may have led them off the path. I may be that false prophet. Just for a moment, consider a Roman household under a patrician. We imagine that you could see the difference between a Christian slave and a pagan slave, but you can't. And if you do, there's a problem for the Christian. The only time the Christian can stand out is when they are submitting to the will of the Father and exercising his commandment. And that is what martyrdom is. That's the only way you can know that when you are killed, you are killed because they hate the gospel, not because they hate you. This goes back to the book of Samuel. It's not you they hate from being king, it's me. That's what's at stake. But if you think you have to have an orthodox this and an orthodox that and a Christian this and a Christian that, you're already trying to draw a distinction between yourself and the pagan slave. And in doing so, you've made martyrdom inaccessible. Because you're not dying for the will of the Father, you're dying for you. So let's get down to business and take seriously the call to endure until the end. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.